good people? How we doing? I just want to share a few messages with you really quick if you have the time. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with our staff this past week and, you know, we really feel like we haven't given you enough actionable items where our audience can go out there and make a difference in someone's life today. You know, right now is the time to do it when we're all at home um, and people are struggling out there. So um, the two groups that need help in this on these two messages are uh, patients that are going to be left without a, a hospital bed when we reach the top of the curve come mid-May uh, and the homeless. So uh, the first one is from uh, SVN. It's a shared value, one of the largest actually shared value commercial real estate firms in the United States. Um, and what they're doing is they've, they've launched a campaign called hashtag CRE to save lives. So what this is all about is uh, according to a Harvard Business Review study, there's like 924,000 hospital beds right now in the United States available. Um, and by mid-May, projections are showing there are going to be three to four million people that will have COVID-19 and will need to either be in a hospital bed or need um, to be tested. So how do we do that, right? So uh, what SVN has, has put together is uh, they have a ton of vacant spaces in a database of all these vacant spaces. Really, the message today is for medical workers, uh, for government officials. If you know somebody uh, who is in that position to make this decision, you know, please t tell them about this uh, campaign. Drive them to real-leaders.com slash solutions, uh, where they can go on, basically just contact, say, hey, I need this space. Uh, all the listings are close to hospitals. They're either drive-through facilities that they can transform into testing facilities, uh, or just vacant spaces of over a thousand square feet uh, where we can you know, set people up and uh, make sure that the heroes of COVID-19, all the medical workers right now, have a space to treat people. Uh, so it's going to be a, a group effort, a team effort, and the only way through this is together. So uh, real quick, here's a message uh, from the CEO of SVN. My name is Kevin Majacomo, CEO of SVN, one of the largest commercial real estate advisory firms in the US, and I nominate the entire organization, all of SVN, specifically Kurt Arthur, Deborah Kwok, Cameron Irons, Brent Miller, and Brian Edmonds to list their properties on real-leaders.com forward slash solutions for medical workers and locally elected government officials to collaborate for immediate access to vacant spaces for the two million patients who won't be able to be treated in a hospital when re we reach the top of the curve in mid-May. So if you are a medical professional or someone who knows someone who can take advantage of these readily available spaces, please share this video or make your own or tag them in the comment section below using hashtag CRE2SaveLives. So please help flatten the curve and join the other agents who have already placed their listings at real-leaders.com forward slash solutions. Let's do this. Let's make an immediate impact and a big difference. Thank you. Again, people, so go to real-leaders.com slash solutions. Uh, or take a video of yourself, tag us, we'll reshare it on LinkedIn, we'll reshare it, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, and let's just make sure we get the ball rolling on this to accommodate the 2 million people that uh, might need space in, here in mid-May. We really don't know what's going to happen. So 
that's one solution. The next one actually comes from our sponsor. I think it's a, it's a great solution. Um, and you know, if, if you're a company who's uh, working remotely right now and you want to send them a little, little pick-me-up gift, great way to help out the homeless. Um, so what is Numbelievable? It's a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to those in need by 2022. So how does it work? Every time you order a box of cookies, there's 12 cookies, a dozen cookies in a box, um, they are going to donate two meals to uh, soup kitchens across America. Uh, so obviously, you know, very difficult time right now for uh, the homeless population. Um, and this is a way we can drive funds for them in a for-profit model. Um, and also, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out here as well. Uh, they are delicious cookies. Like, I, even if you're not even about the the effort to help the homeless, or you, you know, if you if you just are a cookie lover, uh, I've got a roommate here. Yeah, I, yes, I have roommates. Yes, so I've got a roommate here who orders at like two boxes of cookies a week, and they come from a nice place, you know, down the street. He told me, he's a hard reviewer, and he told me these cookies are like an 8.7. Another roommate said it was 8.5, another one said it was a 9.1. That's saying something. And, and I'm, 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 I will go on the record, and so will they, to say these are the best cookies that you can have shipped to you in the mail. You just don't, they're, they're big, they're, they're chewy, they're, man, they're just tasty. I wish I had more to eat. Um, but we went through that box fairly fast, as you can imagine. Um, so, uh, best deal today is you're going to get 25% off. Um, you, all you got to do is go to realdashleaders.com uh, slash podcast. There's the podcast page. There's going to be a picture of a box, the Unbelievable box on there. Um, and just click on that box. It'll take you to the website. It'll automatically uh, apply a 25% discount on your on any order. So you can order as many as you want. Uh, for your employees, uh, for your family members or friends uh, during these times. A little pick-me-up gift again. Um, and they're delicious cookies. I promise you, you'll probably order another one after you try them. Uh, so real slash solutions, or you can go to an num- unbelievable website, enter in code ReLeaders, uh, all uppercase. Delicious cookies. Uh, and again, helping out those in need. And the last thing you can do, folks, is just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. We ended up finding this this one event that they were promoting called the Relay for Life. And that's, I don't know if you know what that event is, but basically you walk around the track right. for 24 hours uh, straight, which is great, but at 24 years old, I'm not yeah, sure that's no, you know exactly your idea of a good time. Uh, and so we kind of you know put that aside and we were sort of just sitting there and um, you know one of our one of my friends said, well, why don't we just do a, a simple pub crawl down Garnett Street here in Pacific Beach and collect cash at the door and just invite as many people we can on Evite. That's, mm. that's kind of what nice. we were using at the time. What year is this, by the way, Scott? 2006. 2006, yeah. okay. Yeah. And then we would just donate the, the money afterwards. And when we were coming up with the name for that pub crawl, the movie Anchorman with Will Ferrell happened to be on in our apartment where he says the catchphrase, you stay classy San Diego. My buddy Pete turned to me and said, well, why don't you, we just name the pub crawl the stay classy pub crawl, never thinking in a million years it would ever go anywhere but there. You are listening to the Realtors Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that story 
was from Scott Chisholm, the founder and CEO of Classy.org, one of the largest online fundraising platforms for nonprofits. And on today's episode, I asked Scott why for-profits should act like nonprofits, the story behind his first sale, and what pressure comes along with early investment at just age 24. So folks, let's give it up for the real Scott Chisholm. Enjoy. Four, three, two. And welcome everyone to the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Scott Chisholm, the founder and CEO of Classy. Scott, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So we're in this uh, floor 13, kind of an unlucky floor, but we're here. Uh, a classy here in beautiful, sunny San Diego. Uh, how does this story go and explain to our audience what classy is? Well, first of all, my house number growing up was 13 as well. 13. And somehow we're on the 13th floor of this building. So it's become a lucky number for whatever reason. So it's, uh, it's unlucky, now it's lucky. Yeah. So we're gonna make normally, that statement. Normally they don't even have the 13th floor buildings. I don't know what that's about, but um, <laughs> I appreciate you guys coming out. Um, yeah, Classy actually started quite a long time ago and it was, a, it was a, really a passion project before it was a technology company. This was back in the 2006 timeframe. And I had moved out from uh, the East Coast with a bunch of my buddies, basically, um, and we were looking for better weather and uh, learning how to surf and all that good stuff. And my first job was actually at a pizza shop, believe it or not. My first foray into entrepreneurship, I had to go door to door and uh, sling pizzas and try to get people to, to come into the store. Uh, but anyways, we, we, were, we were trying to figure out how to do uh, something good as 24-year-olds. And my mom had had cancer growing up, and she had went through you know two bouts of it, actually, um, chemo, radiation. The whole, the whole, you know, whole thing, yeah. and a lot of the folks that I was living with at the time is here in San Diego on Mission Beach. I had also been affected by the disease in pretty profound ways. My buddy Pete's dad had passed away from brain cancer when we were all in high school, and it left a really, you know, strong sort of mark on us and and whatnot. And so. You know, our idea was to basically to, you know, research the cancer organizations in San Diego and try to figure out if we could get involved. And the one that we stumbled upon was the American Cancer Society or the, the chapter of the American Cancer Society here mm. in San Diego. And we had a bunch of issues with the website. Um, first, we just were trying to figure out how to navigate through the thing. It was super clunky and whatever else. And we ended up finding this this one event that they were promoting called the Relay for Life. And that's, I don't know if you know what that event is, but basically you walk around the track right. for 24 hours uh, straight, which is great, but at 24 years old, I'm not yeah, sure that's no, you know exactly your idea of a good time. Uh, and so we kind of you know put that aside and we were sort of just sitting there and um, you know one of, our, one of my friends said, well, why don't we just do a, a simple pub crawl down Garnett Street here in Pacific Beach and collect cash at the door and just invite as many people we can on Evite. That's, mm. that's kind of what nice. we were using at the time. What year is this, by the way, Scott? 2006. 2006, yeah. okay. Yeah. And then we would just donate the, the money afterwards. And when we were coming up with the name for that pub crawl, the movie Anchorman with Will Ferrell happened to be on in our apartment where he says the catchphrase, you stay classy San Diego. And my buddy Pete turned to me and said, well, why don't you, we just name the pub crawl the stay classy pub crawl, never thinking in a million years it would ever go anywhere but that. Right. But, that. Uh, but here we are talking about it. Our name still go. has roots in, in Anchorman. And, and Will Ferrell's even done a, a video for us later on um, talking about his connection to the company. But So we did this pub crawl and we raised $1,000 and we were genius. stoked. Just we were genius. Stoked. Yeah, we were, we were 
were, we were so excited. And I was working at Booz Allen Hamilton at the time. So on that Monday, from my office at Booz Allen Hamilton, I shut the door, I called up the ACS, and I was all excited. I'm like, hey, we raised $1,000 for you. We, you know, we, we were plastered the town with, with your logo, you know, all this stuff. And the woman on the other end <clears throat> actually got uh, quite upset at me for hosting an unsanctioned event. So mm. an event that they didn't approve. I said, well, do you want the $1,000? And she's yeah. like, well, yeah, I want the $1,000. But you have to come to this sanctioned event called the Relay for Life in two weeks in Point Loma and walk around the track. To, and that's how you need to donate the money. Mm. And we're like, okay. So we went and we got the, she asked us to get a check and all this stuff. And so we got that and we went to the this event that we were trying to avoid the whole time. We got in there. We did like two laps. We handed the check to the administrator or whatever, like a baton. And we got, we got out of there as fast as we could. And we were just kind of left with, sort of this bad taste in our mouth. Uh, and, and caveat, I love the American Cancer Society still. They're actually a client sure. today, which is a full circle story. But, hmm. you know, kind of the experience for us and trying to do what, what we call in our world a third party event um, had so much friction in it. We were left basically saying, like, why does giving need to be so hard? Um, and really, Classy's founding story was rooted in that 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 pub crawl and, and that friction, and that's like carried us to today. But for the first like four years of the company, we weren't even thinking about technology. We weren't thinking about online giving. All that we wanted to do was make giving easier, more accessible, and even fun, especially for young people in the younger generation, because we felt like there was a disconnect on what the way we wanted to give sort of on our own terms and the, and the product, if you will, that the organization was providing us or that avenue, that opportunity. Um, so what we did was we decided to basically partner with local nonprofits around San Diego, we would pick different causes. Uh, we, we stayed with the cancer cause, but we moved into like cleaning beaches. We restored a wing for the, of a homeless shelter, et cetera, et cetera. And we would pick a project with a nonprofit and then we would host an event or a series of events for that project. And we would promote the crap out of it and get as many young people to come to these events and really tie into the impact, volunteer for the organization. It was sort of the whole package. Uh, and they were really, really successful to the point where thousands of people were coming to these events. So the athletic events, more pub crawls, of course, uh, music festivals, et cetera, et cetera. We did a partnership. We're right here outside the Padres Stadium. Uh, we did a partnership early with them in the in the uh, or in the early days with the Padres, uh, where Cage the Elephant was one of the headliners. Okay. And our biggest festival it was called the Elemental Experience. Um, solar powered stages, actually, before that was a thing. And that the headliner there was Modest Yahoo with Bass Nectar, Mason Jennings, Pinback, so all like good, pretty good yeah, bands. Yeah. And and Bass Nectar, no one really knew at that, that time. Was. Especially at that time, yeah. right? Like this is now 2009-ish. And we had basically outgrown the, the jury rig system we were using to take the ticketing for our events and allow people to make a donation. We were using <laughs> Evite, PayPal, spreadsheets, you know, and, and MySpace and Facebook to promote it. Literally MySpace, that's, yeah. what, that's what we're talking 2009 now. Um, and we just outgrown it. And so we basically said like, you know, could we build something that was very simple for this Modest Yahoo show to allow our attendees to not only buy a ticket, but to create a personal fundraising page and share that page on the early versions of social media in just a few clicks. And so that's what we did. We literally hired a, a developer to come in and join us, and he built this really uh, rudimentary yet elegant app that would allow our attendees to essentially do, do what we call, in the day, uh, was called social fundraising. So it's sort of an early form of social fundraising or, or crowdfunding for this show. And the beneficiaries, the charities that we were supporting, noticed what we had built 
and we ended up raising tens of thousands of dollars. I think it was like eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars for that one show alone. But the use of the app really took off, and the charity started saying, "Hey, can we use this for our own campaigns and events? Not just the at the time the moniker was State Classy Events, the State Classy Charity Events. Um, can we use this app for our own stuff? Hmm. So for the, the the stuff that they were hosting and organizing, and that's when sort of the light bulb moment went on. We're like, wow, this this isn't even really that good <laughs> in terms of the app and technology." But we built it, we like to say, through the lens of the supporter. So it was very end user friendly, the donor, the supporter. They could do it in a few clicks. It's shared on social. Before, all this was a thing, right? Mm. And it just made the giving experience much easier for the supporter. And that's what they were latching onto in a world where giving was moving uh, very rapidly from offline to online and still is, and now mobile. Um, we were sort of just ahead of the curve. And they were like, you know, that, that's, we want that. Can we have it? And so we, we basically quit our jobs. We phased out the events portion of the business outside of one event called the Classy Awards, which we can get back to. Um, and we went through an incubator here in town. And we, we tried to basically make the big, biggest startup pivot of all time from a pub company to a technology company and we almost died a couple times in between there um, but we relaunched as classy the technology company the SaaS company if you will in uh, January 2011 and so it's been about eight and a half years since we've been a tech we launched as a technology company but really the story started you know four years or so before that so it's been a, a wild journey we can get into the tech portion a little bit but that's kind of how we got here well I really appreciate that story you know going on PB last week I mean, it's, it's always a, it's always a great time down yeah. there for anyone that's not familiar with San Diego. I think what's so cool about that is you really tapped into that culture. I mean, I don't know how many times I would go out of my way as a 24 year old to donate to a cancer society, but hey, if I can go have a couple beers right. and do what I do, you know, do best around there, and exactly. hey, I can contribute to society. I think that's really cool. Now. What are some of the hesitations that, like you said, the ACA had with this, investors may have had with this, and people that are, are a little um, skeptical about an online crowdfunding site like this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was built out of an organic need, so I think it helped us with our first sort of, you know, many dozen uh, customers who wanted to try it out. I mean, we were almost, honestly, in the beginning, we viewed right. ourselves as a hybrid of a nonprofit and a for-profit organization. We never viewed ourselves as, you know, this, we're gonna, you know, I think like a lot of technology companies are, are born with an idea, and then they go incorporate, and then they raise VC funding and all that stuff. And we went through that journey in certain ways, but in the beginning, honestly, we were just, we, we saw ourselves really as what we would come to call and identify as a social enterprise. So we were some weird mix of the two. We were building their technology, we were also fundraising ourselves, and we were just as focused on, or more focused on the end end result, the impact that these organizations were, were having in the world as we were anything else. And I think that made our story not only authentic because it came from the supporters, we came, we were supporters ourselves, um, but we were so focused on uh, the outcomes of the organizations. And I think that really resonated with the space and sort of a, a practice what you preach um, type of way. Mm. But in terms of like, you know, the the um, skepticism from some investors and other people that, you know, other stakeholders we brought had to bring in as we scaled. Um, because we were sort of saw ourselves differently than the average, I think, tech startup, mm -hmm. um, 
it took a while for investors to sort of relate to what we were doing. Sure, yeah. Um, and it was hard for us to raise mm -hmm. money. Um, for the first several years, you know, we, we raised um, maybe a million dollars or so, and it was like $10,000 at a time from anyone that would listen to us. Uh, it wasn't from, you know, Andreessen Horowitz on, on, in Sand Hill Road or something like that. Like, it was very much from friends and family, and it was from, folks that had been successful in business and maybe were sort of shifting into the philanthropic side of their life. And one amazing story was an angel investor um, out of Texas who called us up and he actually had a foundation and one of his foundations was using the early version of Classy. And he was like, what is this? And they literally cold called us and was like, are you looking for angel investors? And he invested $100,000 and ended up continuing to invest over the years until he had almost a million dollar position in the company. Wow. And so, you know, that's just sort of how it happened. Again, like a very organic sort of like long uh, story. And I think that helped us sort of fine tune um, not only how we identify ourselves and, and the terminology of social enterprise, but what that actually means mm -hmm. rather than just feeling it and saying this is the right way to do business. We, right. we, we, we codified a lot of that. It's part of our values now. It's part of the framework okay. in which we do business. Right. And then that helped us communicate to investors. Mm -hmm. and, and also back then, now we're talking 2011 to say 2014, the term impact investor was like basically brand new. Like that didn't, yeah, yeah it did. And, and, and B certification and B labs was just getting started. Like they basically were born alongside companies like ourselves. Or still still pretty new. Yeah. Pretty, still pretty new. And yeah. in terms of the, the evolution of business, it's a, you know, we're, we're talking tiny, right? Yeah. Um, and this is only the last eight years. Um, so for us, we, we felt like we were actually on an island, frankly. And we didn't have a community to relate to. Like the nonprofit community was actually the closest community we had. And I think that that was amazing because we were able to sort of bridge that gap and, and work across the aisle in a lot of ways. And we just, we didn't see, I mean, for-profit, nonprofit's a tax designation. A lot of those, so many similarities. A lot of people say, oh, nonprofits should operate like for-profits. And mm. I usually say, well, non I think for-profits should act a lot like nonprofits. Mm. There's, there's, you know, there's something to be learned on, on both angles there. But anyways, that was our community and still is. Mm. But now the, the social enterprise or the stakeholder type of company community is really grown tremendously um, over the years and, and now we feel like we have a, a, a you know a, a new community or a new a new for, a new set of relationships in that world as well uh, just to clarify for our audience really quick you're saying you were a mix between a nonprofit and for-profit where did you structure your company as originally it was actually a traditional S Corp or S -corp. C Corp okay. yeah like literally we went down to some random lawyer's office walked in and we're like hey we're starting a company and they okay. just like gave us a set of documents like that was literally like as much thought that went into that initially. Okay. So we had like certificates and this stuff, but we were, we, our mindset in the way that we thought about business was coming at it from kind of both angles. So even though technically like on paper or like our cap table was of S Corp and then we became a C Corp, was, it, was that what really made us a social enterprise in mm -hmm. my mind was the way we showed up every day and how we did business and how we tried to keep that um, as core and authentic to what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, over time, we certainly ran into periods of our growth where um, 
the, that mentality and that foundation was uh, at risk in a lot of ways. And, and you get that by adding new stakeholders to the company and whatnot. Um, and so I think not being formally, I, honestly, I'm not even sure B corporations exist. B cert was just getting started from B corporations. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what our options really were um, because we knew we needed to raise money. It's expensive to start a tech company. We needed investors. We knew that from the pretty much the beginning, um, although we had trouble raising the money. So we were advised to sort of set up this way. Maybe if, if B Cert and B Corps were a little bit further along, we would have started with that. Um, but we started with this so that we could raise money. And then we basically just leaned on our own core values and our, our own ideology, honestly, to, set, to, to create the compass that would steer us on how we showed up and how we did business. And I just want to break this down for our audience really quick, yeah. just so they're on the same page as well. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, like what, what I envision your company is doing is you're, you're basically white labeling. So you're selling your crowd's uh, funding service for software to nonprofits like the ACA, mm -hmm. um, like uh, the Girl Scouts of America who want to raise money mm -hmm. uh, so people can go online, they can donate, and it's nice, it's a nice physical appearance on the outside. Totally. People can use that without knowing that it's classy. It's mm -hmm. classy, it's funny. Okay. Yeah, we probably should have said what we actually do. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make sure before we get on to the Yeah, no, it's, it's else, a, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a full online fundraising platform for nonprofit organizations of all sizes, and it's Okay. It's it's crowdfunding and peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, but it's team fundraising. We have a full event ticketing and registration um, product. Uh, it's international fundraising. It's recurring giving management. It's donor management. I mean, it, it's really sort of all-encompassing. Yeah. Wow. It started with just that sort of crowdfunding example. That's okay. a big, still a big piece of what we do. Um, but we work with some. Of, we work with about four thousand organizations now, and we still work with some of the smallest of small organizations right here in San Diego, all the way up to some of the largest organizations uh, in the world, like the Salvation Army, Shriners Children's Hospital, um, Oxfam, and many many others that you would know. Uh, and you know their needs are different because the complexity of the organization is different. But f at a fundamental level, um, you know it's about the donor trends. It's not necessarily about the nonprofit. And donors are increasingly wanting to donate online, fundraise online. They want it to be easy, accessible. The same things that sort of motivated us to do the uh, sort of the event phase of our founding story and just make giving easier, more accessible, fun, even for, for younger people especially. Those same things uh, are showing up in the online world. And when a donor you know, books a house or, or a, a rents a house on Airbnb or has experiences that are beautiful like you know, Instagram or, or whatever it is, they're expecting that same standard in their giving Absolutely. experience. So Absolutely. the bar has yeah. totally gone up. Right. Only five years ago, you could get away with not having a mobile responsive site, which is like insane, right? Mm -hmm. Now that's just like total table stakes. Like you right. will just bounce, the person will just lose trust immediately and bounce. You might be the best nonprofit in the world, but if the, your experience isn't at that standard. So so yes, we're almost like um, WordPress is to a website or Shopify is to e-commerce. We're behind the scenes. So likely the audience is given to a nonprofit that's powered by Classy. So that might just be on their website, it might be through an event they attended, it might be a peer-to-peair -peer page that was sent from a friend. We do all of that, mm. and it's fully white-labeled for the nonprofit. So as we like to say, philosophically, it's their brand before ours. Right. We're not out there promoting ourselves. Totally. And, and I think that's also been uh, one of the key ingredients to our success, putting them in the forefront. So 
what was the space like before Classy was a thing? What were, who were the competitors? What were some challenges with uh, gathering that market share? Yeah. In a way, like the, the sort of classic um, on-premise to cloud story was sort of playing out in our space as it has with like Salesforce and in their world and CRM and others in, in different verticals. Um, where, where our biggest competitors uh, out of South Carolina, a uh, multi-billion dollar public company, been around since the 80s. Um, and it, they've done actually a lot of things right, but you know they, they still are struggling to make the transition from sort of the old way of doing things and old technology into the cloud and then even beyond that. Right. And they so, didn't start out in PB bar crawls. They didn't start out in PB concerts, bar crawls, right. yeah. Although I'm sure they have some okay. sort of funny founding story. <laughs> um, I hear that the founder is actually a soccer fan and I'm a big soccer fan. Too, uh, okay. So you know, we nice. had that in common. Um, but they focused on nonprofits and uh, you know we, we, we give them uh, a lot of respect for that. But you know when, when you've been around for a long time and you've built a lot of technology and sort of a, in a different stack and a different way of doing it, it's very difficult to transition. So the, the state of the market was essentially nonprofits that felt like they were stuck and they had sort of old school antiquated technology and there wasn't a lot of options. They were they didn't have the ability to, to go anywhere because the space was actually fairly monopolized, honestly. Um, it isn't a, it was, it, you know, now there's, it's great because it, it keeps us on our toes, but there's, there's a lot more competition in the space. People, because I think the younger generation is looking to do more with nonprofits and social enterprises generally, um, the whole bar has risen. But mm. like when we kind of came in, you know, we would look at some pages online that was powered by this company and be like, wow, like this is really poor. The experience mm. is really poor compared to some of the other online experiences in our lives. Like, why is there this disconnect, right? Um, and so we, we basically, like from day one, um, tried to fix that and make the giving experience much, much better. Um, and by putting their brand in the forefront and then bringing that same design forward thinking and user experience into the back end. So we've been just talking about the donor experience this software was equally as clunky on the back end. So it was very difficult for a development director, a marketing lead, or an event coordinator to do what they needed to do hmm. to not only manage the campaigns and events, but steward and nurture that donor over time. Ah, okay. Very, very difficult. Now it's like, okay, you know, when you're using Classy, it's like as simple as using you know, an app on your phone or whatever, and the back end is super intuitive, easy, simple, same philosophies that we extended to sort of the heavier administrative tasks that used to take people hours and hours and, and have a ton of manpower to like, you know, simply run us a, a report on something, right? Like mm. for an example. And now you can do it in, in a couple seconds and it's very friendly and you can pull it up on you know, any desktop or on your, on your phone. So what's, uh, tell our audience, what's yeah. the first story? Everyone's got to remember their first sale. Yeah. What's your first sale, your first meeting? What was that like? <laughs> and what'd you feel after that moment? Yeah, I don't even know. You know, I, first sale, that was kind of funny because we were, we were giving the software away for free right. for a long time. Yeah, exactly. But when we first started actually pricing it, um, <laughs> We were so afraid to even put a put a price tag on it. Yeah. We just, you know, again, our mindset was very different back then. Mm. Um, but you know, the software is, you know, when something's valuable, you should charge for it. And we learned that that's that's a really great way to hold hold both sides accountable and have the right type of relationship. But, mm. um, anyways, um, and obviously, it helps us grow and make new and better software. Mm. The first sale, I, when I was really looking at like all right, what organizations would I love to work with? We didn't have Salesforce as our CRM. We didn't have anything. I would actually use a sticky note, like one of those Apple sticky notes, nice. and I would write the organizations oh, okay. down, like the, the digital ones. In, yeah, yeah. yeah. And exactly I would put the organization's about, yeah. name, 
and then I'd put a plus if they if like they answered my email, a minus if they didn't answer my email, some other icon if they picked up the if I picked up the phone and they answered, and I, that was my like pipeline management sticky note CRM. <laughs> sticky note <laughs> CRM. And when we hired our first uh, head of sales, she came in and she's like, oh, so like you know I know Salesforce, you know like I'm sure you guys use that or whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 we're on this sticky note system. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh my goodness, where did I go? Like you know what I mean? Like these guys are. Um, but anyways, yeah, I think. I remember just a few, a few names on there. Um, Salvation Army, honestly, might have been one of them. Um, Team Rubicon was, and so actually, Team Rubicon, uh, veteran-led disaster relief organization out of Los Angeles, now you know in the tens of millions of dollars. They were only a couple hundred thousand dollars, and um, I ended up meeting the founder um, at an event called Summit Series. And I think we were, you know, it was a rough night. We were the first ones at the bar having a Bloody Mary or something like that. His name's Jake, and uh, he likes to tell the story that I convinced him that we were like 10 times the size, the company, and, and, and we really he was like one of our first 10 customers. Right, um, nice. But yeah, exactly. Um, so that was one that was really special because they came on and they've seen tremendous success over the years. Um, they're, they've, they've gone from basically 100 million, or I'm sorry, uh, half a million dollars into the tens of millions, um, which, has been, which has been really remarkable. Um, and I was super fortunate to be able to uh, join their, their, what we call a founding board of directors for Team Rubicon as well. And so that was very special too, I was able to, uh, sort of go really deep into their cause and whatnot and contribute in that way. So that was one that's meaningful to me. Uh, but that was a, one of the organizations on that or, original sticky note. So you said Team Rubicon went from the t hundreds of thousands to now 10 million. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the impact that a software like yours has been able to have for these nonprofits and like what is actually happening? And mm -hmm. ha have you ever looked into measuring something like that? Yeah, totally. Great question. So for Team Rubicon, it's like a you know, a little more straightforward actually than some other organizations, but it's a great example because they're a disaster relief organization. It's, it's kind of a, they have a dual mission because they're helping veterans reintegrate reintegrate back into society and serve again. But so this is like uh, behavioral health? Yeah. Things like that. Um, yeah, it's keeping that purpose alive sure. um, and, and serving again is, oh, okay. you know, it's the beauty of, it's kind of the beauty of the mission, but uh, on the disaster relief front, something happens, they deploy, and they're able to spin up a campaign in a matter of seconds, you know, literally minute, minutes on Classy, and then they mm. get that out there. So when there was, you know, the flooding down south or the fires up north or wherever, I mean, they've responded to hundreds of disasters at this point in oh, time. Okay. So just being able to launch a campaign quickly out, out into the world and collect funds, that used to take a long time. Like when we were talking about the, the older companies um, that came before us, like you'd have to call them up. Like, I mean, it's just a huge headache. So that nimbleness, that speed really plays well into the disaster relief use case. Um, and for them, they also have a big recurring giving program and other things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can you can literally measure the, the old way of doing it would have been that, um, you know, they, they would take a lot of time, they maybe miss that opportunity to raise funds, and then they, they basically directly use the funds for their, their mission. And in fact, um, for a long time, and I'm not sure if they still do this, but they would donate back funds that they weren't, the excess that they didn't use in the in the actual mission itself, hmm. which was highly transparent, almost charity water-esque. Um, so that nimble sense. Which is a lot of problem with a lot of uh, it is. nonprofits. Yeah, it is. Yeah, people don't love that model because it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to, again, it's like everything's contextual. For, for them, it might work great. Mm. Um, for other organizations, it's much harder to do that. Um, mm. So 
anyways, um, you know, for a disaster relief organizations, it's it's huge. But we have a we have put a lot of effort and thought into how do you measure the collective impact of our clients on the platform, and it's it's extraordinarily difficult task, but one that we take seriously, and we're still chipping away at. I would say, um, one you could just look at it from total output, the donations raised. We've been able to prove that conversion rates go up. We're able to improve donor retention through the platform, things like that. So it's mm. on the on the fundraising side, we're okay. making their fundraising a lot more sustainable. Okay. Bottom line, uh, we're also a pie expander. So we're not just saying, hey, you know, take what you've done and now put it on Classy, and, you, and it's going to be a little bit better. Um, our campaigns have proven to got to be. Um, uh, attractive to a new generation of people that otherwise wouldn't have seen that organization. So bringing in new people, so it's the their pie is expanding. Okay. So that's also um, one of the ways that we drive value. And but then you know at the end of the day, the, the money is going somewhere, right? So um, it's either going to disaster relief, it's going to um, you know in, in the case of Shriners Children's Hospital, it's going to to fund the hospitals and patient care. Um, and you know there's a million different you know sort of avenues for this. How do you connect? the programmatic work with the dollars that are raised on Classy. And that's a that's a, a really, really difficult thing to do. But we've put in a whole lot of effort on building out actually an impact uh, measurement framework that allows us to help the organization input programmatic information and try to tie that back to the dollars. Hmm. Um, it's sort of, I would say, in a it's, it was sort of like an academic project. It actually was born out of the Classy Awards, an award show we do um, that measures nonprofits on the uh, merit of their impact. It's sort of like the Oscars for um, nonprofits. nonprofits. Yeah. And we needed a way to basically measure who well, who won, who won the environmental award. Like, how do you, it's, it can't just be like a popularity contest. It can't just be the fact yeah. that they have good branding. Like, how do you actually measure the the merit of their impact on and, the and program? who measures it? Who's ne- moving yeah. the needle, right? Yeah. And so we started out this path of building this impact framework called Progress, which um, to this day, and this is probably five years ago or so, um, is one of the strongest uh, ones that exist out there. And we're still integrating that into the core platform so that what we're trying to do is when someone gives $100, you know, through whatever, even $10 even, um, we can tie that $10 to a program and then tell the donor, hey, your $10 helped do this and move the needle on this program mm, okay. and make that quantitative. Because right now, storytelling is very important, the marketing aspect, of course, right? Like you get things in the mail and you see, you know, like oh, someone okay. that's poor or whatever. But okay. when, if you could actually quantify how the money is moving the needle against the social issue, social or environmental issue that that nonprofit's tackling. Right. We call that the impact feedback loop. That's kind of the holy grail. That's a lot of groups are trying to search for that. Not only um, technology companies, but like the Gates Foundation and all these like more academic um, nonprofit and big NGOs. They're they're all trying to figure out how do you how do you measure impact on the on the on the programmatic side. And then for us, we're, it's it's whether we whether we use our framework or we plug into other frameworks, the key is connecting the dots for, for donors to say, I donated X and this is what happened, right? And I think that's that's kind of where the world's moving and that's when you can really specifically quantify the collective impact of the funds that we're raising on Classy at a much more granular level. And I think that's uh, what investors or donors are looking for is that transparency mm-hmm. to know where that dollar is going to extend to. Mm-hmm. There's been an obviously a big... Uh, Big bluff with uh, the American Red Cross with uh, building homes in Haiti. Mm-hmm. You know, like that—that that was kind of a, a, something that wasn't as transparent. It was kind of a bad look for a lot of nonprofits. 
we can get back to that later. Yeah. But Plastic Bank, have you heard of Plastic Bank? Well, not really. So they basically, I had the uh, opportunity to interview David Katz, and what they do is they employ uh, third world uh, workers, mm -hmm. uh, and for instance, it is in Haiti, mm -hmm. and they basically pay them to collect recyclable plastic. They take that plastic, they melt it down, and then they sell it to someone like S.E. Johnson and puts it back to their products. The full circular yep. economy, you know, close the loop, right? Yep. But what I liked is what you're talking about is that they can quantify exactly how much plastic I'm reducing mm -hmm. when I give them $50. Right. So they have basically just two options. I can uh, basically reduce my plastic waste for an entire year. They take like the average person's yep. plastic waste for the entire year. Yep. And then I don't have to think for the rest of the year. I can just, you know, I don't want to say I do it, but you know, I'll throw a plastic ball in the trash can and say, hey, whatever, you know, I already paid that off, right? which doesn't really correlate, but in the back of my head, it kind of does. So that's what right. I'm talking about, Kwani. Yeah. But Scott, you, you touched on an interesting point about, I think more for-profits can be like non-profits, mm -hmm. and I wish more non-profits would be like for-profits. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, I mean, your example's perfect. Um, it sounds like very much like a just pure, authentic social enterprise model where just by showing up and doing their business, they're they're doing, you know, they're, they're, they're creating that impact. And then the, the problem, and more and more businesses sort of are having that. They used to call it like double bottom line or dual mission. Yeah. I think it's just triple bottom line. Mission, yeah. you know, it's like mm -hmm. the mission is to do these things. And, you know, like, you know, we've, we've discussed actually in the past, like, um, you know, you had a lot of for-profit companies that had social missions just sort of weaved into their company, but weren't, weren't necessarily B-certs or, you know, didn't have a way to quantify what the impact side of what they were doing. Financial metrics are very easy to quantify. Mm. Of course, revenue, these things, right? So people get fixated on that, partially for good reason, because it's very important. You need to build a sustainable business. You have to, you bring in money to have a return for your shareholders, those types of things. But on the impact side, it can be um, a lot more amorphous and, and very very, very difficult to quantify the impact. So I think why I say for-profits could learn from nonprofits because there's so much activity in the nonprofit space about how to quantify and to measure the impact on the program side. So in this case, where this business maybe, I don't know what their structure is, but um, the same type of thinking and the same effort that's going into quantifying a nonprofit program could be applied to a social enterprise or could be even applied to a for-profit. And frankly, a lot of the, the, the effort that's going into the, the impact measurement and the framework and all that stuff is, is also getting fed into um, programs like um, B certification. So that program has gotten so much better and so much more rigorous. So it's focused more on uh, sort of for-profit social enterprise B Corps versus nonprofits. Um, but it's starting to bleed over. So the work that B Cert's doing and some of the work like the Gates Foundation, Classy, and others are doing on the nonprofit measurement side are starting to come together. And I just see a world where you're going to have unification there. So every business or nonprofit will be using similar types of methodologies to measure their impact. So you might be a nonprofit in most of what you do is on the impact side, or you might be a for-profit in some of what you do is on the impact side, but I truly believe that every business, every nonprofit will eventually be measuring this and, and, and communicating it to the world and even be valued by that side in a much stronger fashion than they are today. Scott, you operate a for-profit. Mm -hmm. uh, you help out nonprofits. 
do you believe, so why donate to a, for, a, a nonprofit? So let's think of uh, like the ocean waste example. Yeah. Let's just throw that out there. Yeah. Ocean cleanups, uh, the example I like to use is if you're going to uh, stop a flood, you want to turn off the faucet before you break out the, the mop, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we stop plastic from entering the ocean versus cleaning that plastic up? Mm -hmm. So there is a for-profit model. There's businesses that contribute to that. So I guess why do you think the rationale is for people to donate, say, $1,000 to a nonprofit mm -hmm. versus investing in a, a for-profit that could scale that impact and that solution, very similar to what Classy is doing. As you guys grow, like you said, the profit's good because mm -hmm. now you can help out more nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that there's a contrast there, and what do you think about market-driven solutions versus nonprofits? And I'm sorry, that's a big question. It's a big question, but I think, yeah. I think each sector plays an important role in problem solving, A. So a yes. lot of the ideas and innovation that for-profits bring to market usually start in for-profits or academia in a lot of cases. Not always, but there's a massive contribution from the social sector um, and the academic space that contributes. I mean, look at pharma and all that, but just in the same way, the work that organizations in the nonprofit sector are doing day-to-day -day on the ground is leading to innovations that okay. eventually people know about and then end up in the market. So I think even on the front end, there's a stronger collaboration there. Mm -hmm. can be extraordinarily powerful. And then on the donation side, I think it just depends on where the nonprofit is operating within that sort of what what angle are they taking on the problem? They're not necessarily the ones with the mop, is what I'm saying. A lot of the nonprofits are actually trying to trying to solve the root cause. And that's where this, this impact measurement really comes in. Like, what problem are you trying to tackle? And what's the best way to tackle the problem? Mm. So are you tackling it on, you know, like, is it downstream or is it upstream? Until you find a way to turn the faucet off, you need people with mops. But not everyone should be mopping. Mm. You need kind of both going on, right? I mean, look at homelessness right here in San Diego. You know, the, the solution, the root cause of homelessness is, is, is something that is of great debate. Yeah. And there should be people working on that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be helping the folks that ended up somehow becoming homeless. Right now. Right. They need both. And so the non nonprofit sector, or the nonprofit sector is, is, is a collection of both um, moppers, to use your analogy, and people that are trying to figure out how to fix the faucet. And then in addition, I would, I, coming back to the earlier point, I think they, they spark innovation in the for-profit sector in a, in a massive way. And then there's just the accountability piece, like all of it, both sectors, right? This is something that BCERT has been really great with, but needs to be scaled well beyond um, just just sort of the 4,000 or 5,000 organizations that are uh, B certified. And that's just holding ourselves accountable to being better stewards of the environment and other. So it's just how we show up. So our product or service may not actually be doing the faucet fixing or the mopping, but we all use plastic in our day to day. So how you, how you um, what, what, what you stock in your kitchen or how you um, steer your employees um, to be better stewards in the environment also plays into this too. So you don't necessarily need to be directly working on the problem to be a stakeholder in solving the overall problem. And so I think it's both. Uh, I'm just gonna play on that. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and that's why it's a difficult question, but I think you answered it very well. And that, to me, is uh, you're encompassing all stakeholders. You're working with NGOs. You're working with the government. You're a for-profit solution yourself. I think that's really, really unique. Now, could you explain to our audience what you believe 
stakeholder value is in your own company and how you use it, not just externally, yep. but internally with where we are right now on the, on the 13th floor. Yeah, and I'll try to articulate this the best I can. I, I nailed your really tough question. Watch yeah, you did. I'll screw up the, the law <laughs> ball question. Honestly, like years ago, I, I would answer this in a confusing way, and I think it really comes down to this fundamental idea that a stakeholder company is striving to create a win-win business model. So, so one stakeholder is not losing at the expense of another. Mm. It doesn't mean that, you know, just take the financial or the shareholder stake. It doesn't mean that you're anti-shareholder. It doesn't mean that you're anti-making money or anti-return. It just means that the shareholders shouldn't be re rewarded and make money at the expense of, say, the employees. Mm or the customers themselves, or the community. And that's how we kind of look at our groups. Everyone has a slightly different definition of the stakeholder groups. Those are ours. It's yeah. employees, or team, it's customers, it's community, and it's financial. Mm -hmm. um, so we really truly believe and have from day one that we can create a win-win business model. And by doing so, if each stakeholder group is winning, and we're creating value for and with them, then ultimately over the long run, shareholders will make the best return. Right. And that's also a key concept. Over the short run, you know, a couple of years, maybe you're making decisions based on, um, you know, optimizing the financial outcome at the expense of others. And to maximize financial returns in three years, you might have to do that in some ways. But if you're thinking long term, we truly believe that you can center, get that balance and continuously calibrate so that each stakeholder is winning. Mm. By winning, I just mean that we're creating value just by us existing as a company, we're creating value for that stakeholder group. Now the key is measuring that and holding yourself accountable to it. And we, we've done it in a lot of different ways over the years. We are moving into, uh, finally, into the B certification process, which I still believe is the best existing framework to use um, for for-profit for social enterprise companies um, to hold themselves accountable and to create a standard that others can kind of share best practices and pull themselves up. Yeah. And so we'll be using that moving forward. And, and luckily, the way we view the world and our stakeholders maps really closely with how B certification looks right. at their stakeholder groups. So for employees, okay, how do you measure that? Well, we have something called employee MPS, for example, and we survey our employees. So it's basically, would you recommend Classy to appear? It's not, it's not okay. that dissimilar to the okay. MPS for customers. Mm. And so we do things like that, and we, it's almost like a stock market. We look at it, and, we, and it, it's one thing to look at it, but then you take action, right? Or what we're doing with diversity, equity, inclusion, and we a huge piece of, and it was this came from our employees and our team, um, we added our diversity, equity, inclusion commitment right into our company bylaws, a la B Corp. But literally it says, the board of directors and everyone will form a committee and take DEI initiatives extraordinarily seriously. Um, they'll show up at board meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And so that came from our employees and it was because we were focusing on what do they care about? And, and where, where, you know, if they're, a stock, if they're, at, if they're feeling as a stock market, what, how do you quantify that? And then if it's going down, why? What do you do about that? Hmm. Um, community can be some, one of the hardest, and that's where I think that, that and that's us, our contribution to society, to the environment, to San Diego. Hmm. What does that look like, and how do you measure that? Because in some ways, you want that as closely tied to your, your, your core mission as possible. You don't necessarily want to be just out here doing, the, you know, everyone can be good stewards, but we have to be, you know, of the environment, we're not, but we can't spend all of our energy 
doing environmental projects if we, we have a we have a job and a mission exactly. and Cheryl and, and all these things, right? So you want to try to figure out, you know, in the if I'm serving my community, how am I doing it in the most like core authentic way that makes sense for my particular business? And that's okay. where I think that social enterprise piece comes in. And for us it was always yeah. okay, we're we're in the nonprofit space. We are helping them with their technology. The 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 piece of the equation that people don't um, seem to understand or doesn't get enough recognition is the 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 impact side and the merit of their programs. And that's why we created the the um, Classy Awards, which is like I said, the Oscars of philanthropy. And that was that was very much in the community bucket. You don't have to be a customer of Classy. There's no strings attached. It was literally our own social mission program to elevate the awareness of the programs that nonprofits here in San Diego were doing. So literally, what are they doing on the ground and trying to build up support for the impact that they're making in the community? And then we scaled it across the nation. So now any nonprofit and even some social enterprises can actually qualify to apply. And 2,000 people show up like the Oscars and we, we hand out awards on stage and there's, there's prizes and all that stuff. And the, the purpose of that is to elevate the impact side of the equation. And so that was something that was core and authentic to us, made sense. And it helped us sort of have the you know, balance between sort of the technology and the customer side, the financial side, and what we would call the community. Okay, so all of these decisions are encompassing the stakeholders. We talked about uh, the community in San Diego. Just wanna emphasize this again, the community in San Diego, uh, Classy itself as a company, uh, and the employees within the, the company itself. So we're, in, we're encompassing all of the stakeholders that would be involved. Now, I wanna touch on the investment side of the stakeholders. Scott, you were 24 years old, you got $100,000 from a client and a customer who was an angel investor. Mm -hmm. What comes along with this pressure when someone comes in and has 10% of your company? And have you dealt with any difficult decisions from uh, shareholder pressure that might not align with your intentional values that you mentioned earlier? Absolutely, that's one of the most important questions, I think, because you know, there's a thing in, you know, I'm sure that the audience knows about this, but it's a thing called shareholder primacy. And that was a concept that sort of was born in the, the 70s, I believe, with Milton Friedman, and where basically the perp, the, what he said was the purpose of a corporation is to basically return money to shareholders. Right. I find that really limiting. We've never, we've never thought that way. And that's why I said we sort of viewed the world as, as a, a hybrid of a nonprofit and a for-profit. What I mean by that is basically looking at the stakeholders and trying to drive value and create this win-win business model. Um, but the investor community generally, I would say, and it's changing slowly, is really happy with shareholder primacy mm. because it puts them first sure. on the list of priorities. And when you put someone first on the list of priorities, it's very easy to make decisions at the expense of others because you can just anchor on something that says, well, the purpose of the corporation is to make money for shareholders. So who cares about the community? You know, Who cares if our employees suffer for a year or two years? It doesn't matter because the purpose is to make money. Right. Those things yeah. should be last. And there's no actual legal footing in that concept at all. It's more philosophical in nature. It's just, it took off because it's very simple. If you have like a list of priorities like a task list for the day, you're like, the number one thing is the number one thing. Like, it's kind of messy to say, oh, let's create a win-win for everyone. And, and, and honestly, people might, might sound soft to an investor, like, make money, you right. know, drive the share price, and then that benefits everyone. But that's not always the case. So by looking at the world through this lens of stakeholders, and it doesn't need to be 100 stakeholders, it can actually be fairly simple. We have basically four. How are we making decisions to make sure that 
especially over the long run, each or we're not we're not creating value at the expense of uh, of another. So from the investor's perspective, early on, when someone basically when you know they invest in your company and they they own a percentage, they're expecting a return at some point. So when you take money, there's an expectation that's attached to that money, and you mm -hmm. have to go in eyes wide open. Uh, and I think we always have. Um, I think investing is awesome. Shareholders, I love our I love our shareholders honestly. Like it, so. Thinking this way doesn't mean you're anti-shareholder. Doesn't mean you're like against making them a return. We just believe that if we can create this win-win, then they're going to make the best return, and they're going to feel really good about their investment because we're not screwing someone over to make them a buck. Mm -hmm. But that comes down to the type of investor you bring in, and we haven't always gotten that right. So now there's impact investors and things like that. But even angels, angel investors, they're people. These people, they're all, these are all humans. They're not like some robot that just says, you know, I like your company because X. These are people and they, they hold their own value system. Right. And so that's the key thing that I've learned, right? Like who you bring in, even regardless of firm, is so critical because they're going to look at the world in a certain way. And maybe you can sort of influence them to look at your way, but it really should be a handshake up front. And if you look at the, way, the world one way and I look at it a different way, and now we're basically getting into a marriage because we're investing. What do you think is going to happen? And we weren't always that savvy or wise. I mean, we've we we brought folks into the company in certain in, in certain phases that didn't align with that phys philosophical viewpoint. That did want to see the world in a very simple way, where shareholders were the really the only thing that mattered. Really, it wasn't even shareholders; it was their investment. But either way, that sort of myopic view of the world, short-term thinking, extreme focus on that at the expense of everyone else can completely tank a culture. Because the culture, especially in uh, uh, one like Classy, it, the, the employees, that what we're doing here, it's a, it's a holistic picture. Right. So when the board, especially if you get an investor on the board, the, the board has a lot, of, a lot of influence and they need to be aligned too. And, and our board is fantastic, but we, we had an investor come in and then it sort of added an ingredient to the board that shook things up and they mm -hmm. saw the world their way. And we all were very rooted in right. sort of the classy way of, of doing things. And these are financial, these are investors that, you know, on, the, on, on the, the folks that look at it this way and maybe the, the person that didn't, these are folks that, you know, they're very sophisticated investors. They're not even technically impact investors. So like, you don't have to go with the impact investors to have someone that's actually aligned with your way of thinking and kind of gets it. But if but there's definitely a subset that, that does not. And so the biggest learning was really screening that on the front end. Like the partner fit and values alignment is so extraordinarily important. Uh, and for us, frankly, like that one misalignment, it was just one investor. That was a big investor. It's one of the lead investors. But that one misalignment, um, frankly, almost almost you know shattered the company. To be wow. honest with you, I mean, it was. Uh, I saw one guy that, uh, that did a podcast with you. I don't know who it is. I got to meet him at the Jay Wilkinson. Yeah, it yeah. said uh, I got fired with my from my board. Or fired something from like his that. own company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, we weren't that honestly. We weren't that far away from a story like that. And I'm so and eighty percent of the happy. employees they want to let go. And I'm yeah. so happy that we were able to rebound, you know, out of that. And we still got work to do uh, to repair from that that sort of period. Um, but let's just say that we we had our priorities pretty pretty backwards for a mm -hmm. little while there. And we had not lost who we were, because I think we knew, but we, we didn't know what to do about the situation. We had let someone in with a set of expectations and a view of the world that was so different. And we were like trying to unwind it. And you know, when you get, it's like almost like, oh my God, what I do? 
and it's like at the board level, at the investor level, the employees are like, well, I know something's wrong, but I, you know, like you can't, you, you know, you don't want everyone to freak out. You can't share, like there's a massive misalignment at the board too much, right? So like, mm-hmm. you know, there are things that would trickle down, like employee decisions, all, all sorts of stuff. They'd be like, well, that's not the way we used to do things. And it wasn't just about maturing. There's, there's an evolution of maturity in, in any company, right? It's not about that. Um, but it's about decisions that were made specifically to benefit one party at the expense of others. And eventually that starts to grind on you like water on a rock, right? Like it dulls what made you sharp, what, what is the special sauce of the culture. Uh, and that's what started to happen. We were able to basically um, buy out that investor after an extraordinarily hard and painful year to figure out how the heck to do that. Yeah. Cause that's not easy. I mean, we're in the tens of millions on our way to a hundred million dollar company. We've raised $40 million in, in, in venture capital. It's, you know, you don't read about these stories. You, you, you usually read about like the graveyard of companies that maybe were trying to fix a mistake. And I just feel unbelievably grateful to a, the board, the, the, the remaining board, um, who is supportive of this because they realized that we were sick and needed to get better and come back to our why. Our theme for this whole year is, you know, coming back to our why. Um, and start really focusing again on, the, on, on, on all the stakeholders. And that's, that's tremendous, and I feel very grateful to them to give us that chance to do that. And I think to play off that, that the theme of what I just got from you is, is just that stakeholder alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your culture, that was culture eats numbers for breakfast, everyone knows that. So that culture is able to attract employees to this business. Mm-hmm. That means, you know, hopefully they'll stay at the company longer and they'll work better, they'll be more satisfied about their work. Yep. And then that attracts those investors who want to come in, who have the same, like you said, the same why, yep. same values. And then all this encompassing, this you win, I win mentality, is what you're saying is going to have this long-term success. And that's very difficult for someone to come in who isn't aligned with that to make and squeeze profits out of that. Or has, a, or has a shelf life on their investment of only a couple of years. Like ah. their expected return is just to happen in three years when we're all thinking, you know, five, 10, 20, you know, who knows, right? Like it's like, you know, you have these the short mind. Imagine like a short-term investor trying to invest in like Patagonia who thinks about things in like, you know, literally generations like that. It's just obvious and be a, be a mismatch. But when you're a tech startup and things are just, it's like lightning speed and you're growing super fast and you're trying to figure it out and you're trying to raise the next money and all these different things. And usually tech companies aren't profitable right away. So you're trying to get into profitability. So a lot of those dynamics are extraordinarily challenging mm-hmm. and you make compromises mm-hmm. and sacrifices sometimes to just keep going. That's kind of like, you know, kind of where we were. And then you realize, oh my goodness, maybe if I had just taken a little bit more time or I had really evaluated the, the partner in a deeper way, right. rather than just feeling like I have to do this, um, we wouldn't have, you know, we would have avoided uh, a lot of um, turmoil and conflict over the next, you know, 12 months or so. Now, Scott, by staying true to your values and having those values create value, we consider that a mark of a good leader. To you, from your experience, what would you say your definition of a real leader is? I'm gonna bring our core, two of our core values into this, um, not to be cheesy, but uh, one, I'd say one of our core values is to create meaningful value. 
and to us, that, that literally is creating value with our product and to our customers, but it's creating value across those, those four quadrants. And I don't think you even have to call yourself a social enterprise or even identify as a stakeholder company, but for me, a real leader is someone that thinks about the holistic value and, and the purpose of why they exist in the world and has at least attempted to some degree to instill that in the organization so that when the founder's gone, the CEO's gone, which is all natural part of life, right? You know, the company, it, those those principles are, in, are sort of institutionalized so that it, they can live on. And I think that's, a, a, you know, a mark of a great leader for me, especially in today's world where, you know, companies are, are at the epicenter of the good and the bad. And I think um, they can be a massive catalyst for positive change moving forward. The other one is lead by example. So it's one thing to like, have, you know, basically go out there and talk about this stuff, right? But if you're not doing it or challenging yourself to improve, like the BCERT thing is great, like for me, because we were doing it our way and we were measuring it our way, but we felt like it wasn't good enough. And we'd gone through this experience where we had maybe, the compass wasn't as clear as it should have been, right, for us. Right. And so we said, you know what, like, what's the best that there is out there? Let's let's standardize, let's go into that community. Let's, let's hold ourselves accountable to that so that we make sure that we are practicing what we preach on a day-to-day basis. And, th- and we create those, um, I like to say something to lean on, but we create that stronger foundation so that if someone's coming in there, the influence is pushing you in one way, right? You can go, ah, no, and you right, push back. Right. But if you don't have that foundation and that core, you got nothing to lean on, you fall over. And all of a sudden, it's too easy to push you into you know, uh, a world you don't want to be in. And so leading by example is critical. Um, I think we've done a phenomenal job for the most part of our in our nine plus year journey with Classy of doing that. Um, but, I, but I see us evolving the company and setting those, those anchors and strengths the foundation is a key piece of doing that and making sure it happens when the rest of us here and the leadership team myself are, are gone hopefully this is going on for a long time well scott this interview went on for a long time today so I'm, <laughs> I'm, i appreciate your time is that uh, good or bad that was great i, I, I enjoy longer interviews yeah. honestly because you know i love the sound of my own voice obviously yeah <laughs> um so appreciate your time coming here on the really podcast podcast talked about a lot today um, from the PB bar crawls, uh, raising money that way in the pizza shop yeah. to uh, stakeholder alignment and then following that up with what leadership is needed you know, to, to, to sustain an effort in an organization like Classy. So I just want to appreciate you coming back on the show and the Real Years podcast for, uh, podcast for Scott Chisholm. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you. And stay classy. And stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> All right, good people, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit the subscribe button to start receiving notifications of this amazing podcast. And for all the lucky listeners out there today, you, my friend, are going to walk away with a free magazine. All you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and use coupon code podcast twenty five at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a one-year subscription. Again, folks, that's four magazines for the price of three using coupon code PODCAST25. That's all lowercase. And if you're a visual learner, you want to watch this interview on your computer, TV, or tablet with friends and family, make sure to go to our YouTube channel at Realers Magazine to see this and all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. And thanks again for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode of the Real Leaders Podcast.